This is an ABC podcast. The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends. Uh, do you know where I can find a candle? I need one for Tech Sabbath. I need to pee. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, no help. I want a candle that's going to kind of last. This will do. Yeah, candle, done. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. So I've decided to do the Tech Sabbath, one of the productivity tips from our guest Casper to Kyle last week. So from sundown today until sundown tomorrow, I am going offline. That means no laptop, no mobile phone. Wish me luck. (laughs) And as the sun is setting on Friday, time to observe the Tech Sabbath. The candle is lit. Hmm. Maybe I should read a book or something. So it's five o'clock Saturday morning, Tech Sabbath, and I've come into the study to check my phone because I wanted to know what my sleep score was. I forgot. Now I'm just standing here feeling a bit sad because I can't look at my phone. It is the end of Tech Sabbath, sundown, Saturday. I'm feeling very relaxed. I'm going to try this next Friday. But if this is too extreme for you, there are other ways of controlling digital distraction rather than locking your devices in the cupboard. With me is the man who literally has written the book on this, Near Isle. His first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, was a bestseller. And interestingly, Near's second book, Indistractable, tells us how to control the distraction from those habit-forming products. And that's why he's here. Nia's going to help us perform better at work by being less distracted and more productive. Nia, can we start with your epiphany about technology? The moment of reckoning for me was when I was with my daughter one afternoon. Uh, We had this day plan together where we just, you know, could spend quality time together. And we had this activity book of, of things that daddies and daughters could do together, you know, make a paper airplane and crossword puzzles. And one of the activity in the book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, I thought it was a good time to check my phone. And I looked at my phone, and I don't even remember what was on my phone, but what I remember is that when I looked up from my screen, my daughter had left the room. She'd gone to play with some toy outside because I was sending a message to her that whatever was on my phone was more interesting and more important than she was. And that's when I realized that I'd blown it. And if I'm honest with you, it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I was at work. And I would say, okay, I'm going to work on that big project. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. And yet 
20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, I'm working on something else. That's not the thing I said I would do. It would happen when I would say, oh, today I'm definitely going to exercise. I'm definitely going to eat right. And yet I wouldn't day after day. And so if you ask me today what superpower I think is most important to have, it's the superpower of doing what you said you would do, of becoming indistractable. And so that's really why I started this, this line of, of, of research to understand, wow, how amazing could our lives be if we simply followed through on everything we say we're going to do? Tell me about why technology is so good at attracting our attention. Uh, what m- most people don't realize is that there is uh, a, quite a lot of psychology behind how these products are designed to hook us. So whether that's things like variable rewards, and this comes out of uh, Skinnerian psychology where uh, B.F. Skinner had these very famous experiments in the 1950s where he took pigeons and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at this disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. And Skinner quickly found that he could train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they would receive this reward, right? This is called operant conditioning. It's the same way you might train a puppy, for example. But then one day, Skinner ran out of these food pellets. He ran out of these rewards. And so he couldn't afford to give them to the pigeons every time. He could only afford to give it to them once in a while. And what Skinner observed was that when there was variability, meaning sometimes the, the pigeon would peck at the disc and there was no reward, But the next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a food pellet. What he found was that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Right. So what we find is that variable rewards in all sorts of products cause us to engage, they cause us to focus, and they are highly habit-forming. Yeah, what about workplace? Like how might that play out at work, maybe with my iPhone? Any kind of variable reinforcement, so whether it's the ping and ding on your phone from an email, right? Email is probably the mother of habit-forming technology because there's uncertainty, there's variability. Who is it from? Is the message urgent? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Uh, If you think about your Facebook news feed, right? Every time you scroll in the news feed, what's in the feed? What do people post? What are the comments? Comments say how many likes does something get, right? It's very much this gambling type mechanic of variability. That's what keeps us hooked. Now, Nia, so my heart rate has now just gone up just even hearing about all of that. And you were a lecturer in marketing at Stanford. And so writing a book like Hooked made absolute sense. But what made you leave the dark side and pivot (laughs) to researching and writing about distraction then? Well, I have to take a little bit of issue with the dark side because (laughs) um, I I would argue that, in fact, uh, that, that we can use the same psychology for good. So Hooked wasn't about, you know, helping the big tech companies. It was about stealing their secrets for the rest of us. <laughs> now, ah. the, the other side of the coin is that when you understand how to build good habits, I also earned an understanding in how to break bad habits. And so when I found that I had a particularly bad habit in my own life uh, around distraction, I knew I had to reassess my relationship with, with my behaviors. And And one of the keys to being productive is time management. But you say that time management is actually pain management. How? Yeah, so this was a big revelation for me. I wrote this book uh, not because I have a lot of willpower and self-control, but quite the opposite. I used to be clinically obese. And so I've always struggled with willpower and self-control. And I think that there's a, a very analogous relationship between why we would overeat and why we overconsume information, why we become distracted. And I think the icky, sticky truth that I didn't want to admit to myself is that it wasn't 
the technology doing it to me. I know a lot of people want to blame the technology because it's a, it's a very easy scapegoat. The truth of the matter is that what I learned in my five years of research studying distraction is that distraction is not just about what is happening outside of us. It's not just about the pings and dings and rings. It's about what is happening inside of us. You know why I was obese? It wasn't just because food is delicious. It was because I was eating my feelings. I was overeating when I was bored. I was overeating when I was stressed. I was overeating when I felt shameful about the fact that I was overeating. Well, you know why I used to get distracted by technology? Because every time I was feeling lonely, I would check Facebook. When I was uncertain, I would go on Google. When I was bored, I would you know, watch sports. I would read the news. I would do anything to take my mind off of my present uncomfortable emotional state. And so that's why time management is pain management. If we don't understand the discomfort we are trying to escape with distraction, we will always get distracted by one thing or another. And you call this the drivers of distraction. Right. So this is where internal triggers are so important. So it's not just the external triggers, the things happening outside of us. It's really about what's happening within us. Uh, we know that distraction is nothing new. You know, as much as we like to blame the, tech, the big bad tech companies, Plato talked about this very same problem 2,500 years before the internet. He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. And every generation blames the radio, the television, even the written word. Socrates said the written word, this terrible technology of writing things down was going to enfeeble men's minds. And so this latest techno panic is just a long line of people blaming things outside of themselves when the real problem, it's not only the distractions. We certainly have to learn methods to manage our technology so our technology doesn't manage us. But we have to start first and foremost by understanding what is the discomfort we are trying to escape. And how does this play out at work? Have you got an example of this? The workplace is, is a really important topic because if you are indistractable, but your boss decides to call you at nine o'clock at night uh, in the middle of, you know, when you're with your friends or having dinner on a Friday, is it the phone's fault that your boss used to call you? Is it the technology that did it? Or is it the fact that you work at a company culture where people don't respect your time? And so what I learned is that there's no relationship, there is no correlation between how much tech a company uses and how distracted people feel. That in fact, distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. And I profile several companies. One of them is, is in fact Slack. Slack is the world's largest group messaging service. And uh, many people that I spoke with, it was actually the second most distracting technology. Number one was email. And in the surveys that I did, the second most distracting technology was Slack or some kind of group chat. And yet at Slack, they don't struggle with distraction. It has nothing to do with the technology. It's about the company culture they've built that respects people's time and understands that to do our best work, we need to, to work in an indistractable fashion without distraction. What's something that they do near to control that. There's three traits of a company that uh, that builds an indistractable workplace culture. Number one is psychological safety. Psychological safety is when you can talk about a problem without fear of retribution, without fear of getting fired. So the real problem with distraction at work is not the technology. It's the fact we can't talk about the problem of distraction. 
And so at companies like Slack, and there's a few others that I profiled in the book, they can talk about this problem. And when they can talk about it without fear of people thinking, oh, you're just trying to get out of your responsibilities or you don't want to work hard, that they respect that when people raise their hands and say, hey, you know what? I'm not able to do my best work if I'm constantly interrupted, if I'm constantly distracted. What can we do about it? When people have the psychological safety to talk about the problem, they can fix it. The second thing they do is that they have a forum to talk about the problem. So at Slack, it's, it's fascinating. They actually use Slack to talk about the problem of distraction. So when somebody has a, a, an issue, they go on to these Slack channels. Uh, they call them beef tweets. So they literally go on Slack. They talk about the problems with the company, whether it's company culture, the product, distraction at work, whatever the problem might be. And management acknowledges that people have been heard by, get this, they use emoji. So when somebody posts a, an issue, a, a concern, management will uh, use the eye emoji to tell people that it's been seen by upper management or the checkmark emoji to tell them the problem has been solved. Now, it doesn't mean that every complaint needs to be necessarily fixed, but it does need to be acknowledged. People need to feel like they have a voice and their voice is heard. And number three, and most important, is that company management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. So when you walk into Slack company headquarters in San Francisco, you know, this big publicly traded multi-billion dollar company, you will see in bright neon letters, right? You can't miss it. It's literally in neon. It says, work hard and go home. <laughs> because part of the company ethos, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down in company management, they believe that people do their best work when they are left alone, when they have time to focus, when they have time to process, that's when they do their best work. They don't need to constantly be interrupted. And so that is something that the, the management exemplifies and that, of course, people follow because culture flows downhill. And the distraction that comes from interruptions can indeed be costly. Do you want to tell us about the study of nurses administering drugs, Nia? This blew my socks off. This was really amazing. So it turns out that uh, if it was a disease in the United States of America in 2019, after heart attacks and cancer, the third leading cause of death, if it were a disease, would have been prescription mistakes. Nurses and doctors giving patients the wrong medication or the wrong doses of medication inside hospital settings. This is a 100% preventable human error, and it doesn't just happen in America. It happens all over the world. And most of the time, hospitals slough this off and say, well, what are we going to do? It's a, you know, people make mistakes. Until a group of nurses at UCSF wanted to figure out why this was happening in their hospital system. And they did a study, and they found that the reason that people were being given the wrong medication was none other than distraction that when nurses were dosing out medication, they were interrupted during their dosing rounds on average 10 times. And every time they were interrupted by a colleague, they were making these small mistakes and they didn't even realize they were making these mistakes. And so the analogy is, is very apt for even for people who, who are knowledge workers, who maybe are not healthcare practitioners. <laughs> you know, the nurses didn't realize they were making these mistakes until it was too late. And that's what happens to us in our workplaces. We think we're doing great. We think we're doing a fine job. And we don't realize until afterwards how much better we could have been at our job had we done it in an indistractable fashion. So the good news is that there's a, a happy ending to this story <laughs> that nurses found that the solution to this problem was not some multi-million dollar program. It wasn't some fancy new technology. The solution, believe it or not, that reduced the number of prescription mistakes by 88% 
was simply having the nurses don plastic vests. They wore these cheap plastic vests over their garments that said on the back, drug round in progress, do not disturb. That almost eliminated the problem. Now, why is this such a, a great story to tell for the rest of us, for knowledge workers? Maybe we, we, we work in a cubicle or, or working from home right now. It turns out that we can do something very similar to do what I call hack back the external triggers in our own life, particularly from colleagues. So one of the things that comes in the book that you pull out, you fold into thirds, and you put on your computer monitor. And so when you are indistractable, when you need that hour or two at work where you really need to focus and you do not want to be disturbed by your colleagues, you put this screen sign on your computer monitor, and that tells your colleagues, please don't disturb me right now. I'm indistractable. Well, run us through some other basic strategies of dealing with distraction then, Nia. Sure. So step number one to become indistractable is mastering the internal triggers. So it's really about having a new habit so that when we feel anxious, stressed, lonely, we're not impulsively checking our email or, or social media to take our mind off of that feeling. We're gaining more traction rather than distraction by understanding and mastering those internal triggers. The next step is to make time for traction. So one of the simplest things that you can do that most people don't do is to stop running your life with a to-do list and use a calendar. The way most people use to-do lists is destroying their productivity. And it's not that I'm against writing down what you need to get done. I'm against running your life based on that to-do list. Studies have found that people who wake up in the morning and say, oh, what am I going to do next? Let me look at my to-do list statistically get a lot less done than the people who do what's called time boxing by planning out their day, what they're going to do and when they're going to do it down to the minute. Now, this might seem like a lot of work and people say, oh, I'm, I need to be spontaneous and I don't know if I can do that. It's, you know, I'm telling you, it's a life changing practice and it's so much better than keeping a to-do list because what to-do lists encourage is a few things. One, they encourage us to do the easy as opposed to doing the important tasks mm. in our day. And not only that, they guilt us into the fact that even when we have leisure time, if you haven't finished everything on your to-do list, you constantly feel like you're never enough. You didn't finish. As opposed to when we keep a time box calendar, and we don't only plan the time for productive things, so to speak. We also plan time with our friends, with our family, time for ourselves, time for prayer, or meditation, whatever it might be, that's on your calendar. And so that's a much more productive technique because- you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Can I just, um, can I check one thing? So this idea of time boxing, can, is there a specific definition of what that involves, Nir? Yeah, so it's, it's taking your day and planning out when you're going to do uh, specific things that you want to do uh, in that calendar. And so the idea here is that you're going to turn your values into time. What are values? Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So instead of, you know, a lofty five-year plan or, you know, goals that someday you're going to accomplish, what I, what I tell people to do is to simply plan for next week. How would the person you want to become spend their time in the week ahead? And I give people these three life domains, starting with you. You are at the center of your life. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. So do you have time in your day? for proper rest? Do you have time for exercise? Do you have a bedtime? How many of us are hypocrites? We tell our kids to go to bed on time, but then we stay up late scrolling uh, the internet, right? Because we don't have a time on our calendar set for that. 
So it's about making sure that you turn your values into time when it comes to you. Then your relationships. Many of us, I know I used to, uh, I leave whatever scraps of time are left over for the people I, I, I love most, which is terrible. So now I have time in my calendar for my daughter, for my wife, for my important relationships. And then finally, your work. And this is where most people start, even though I think it's the place we should look last. And we have to realize that there are two types of work. There's what we call reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is how most people spend their day. It's reacting to the emails, reacting to the phone calls, and that's fine. Our work involves some element of that. But if you don't make some time for reflective work, you are really missing out. The reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. The planning, the thinking, the strategizing, you have got to plan out that time in your day and keep it sacred because that's where real work gets done, right? Not just the urgent, but also the important tasks that time has to be reserved for that reflective work. And um, Nia, what is multi-channel multitasking and how can it help us to be more productive? Sure. So there's a, a myth out there that we can't multitask. And we've all heard this ad nauseum, right? That you can't multitask, you can't multitask, right? If you want to be productive, you have to do one thing at a time. And that is kind of right, but mostly wrong. Of course we can multitask. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, can't we? Of course we can't. The idea here is to, if you are going to multitask, to do it correctly. So the correct way to do it is to do what's called multi-channel multitasking because it is absolutely correct that we can't absorb information on the same channel at the same time. It's like watching two television channels at the same time. You can't watch two shows on two channels at the same time. You won't be able to follow the story on either. That's because they're both coming in on the same sensory channel. But we can most certainly watch TV while we're on a treadmill, right? So we're engaging different sensory channels, physical as well as visual. So multi-channel multitasking allows us to have these various forms of input so that we can use what's called temptation bundling. Temptation bundling is when we use a reward from one area of our life to encourage us to do something helpful in another area. For example, when I see an article online, I know that that news company, uh, whether it's the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever, whatever news source you like, they have designed that content to keep me scrolling and clicking and you know checking uh, the news constantly. So I have a rule that I don't read the news on the web page. I save it to an app. I use an app called Pocket, but there are many that, that, that do this, that will scrub the contents and then read it out to me over my headphones. And so I have a rule that I can only consume those articles when I'm in the gym or on a walk. Okay, so that's a case of multi-channel multitasking and temptation bundling. I've taken a task that otherwise would have distracted me at my desk, and I've used that as a reward to help me do something helpful like going to the gym or taking a long walk. Super helpful, Nia. And I reckon we could go on for ages, but I, I need to ask you before you go, given that you've written a book called Indistractable, is there a lot of pressure on you to always be focused and <laughs> indistractable? There's a wonderful quote by Poelo Coelho who said that a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. 
And so it's the same goes for distraction. If you keep getting distracted by the same things, how many times can we blame technology for distracting us? Do something about it. And so that's the difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that an indistractable person looks at the distraction and says, okay, there's only three potential causes for every distraction an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. And they take steps today to make sure that they don't get distracted again in the future. And so I definitely get distracted from time to time. And so what I do is to make sure that I acknowledge, hey, becoming indistractable is all about striving to do what we say we're going to do. It's about striving to live with personal integrity. How can I make sure that that distraction doesn't occur again in the future? Nice out, Nia. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nia. My pleasure. Thank you. International best-selling author, former Stanford lecturer and behavioural design expert, Nia Ale, teaching us how to control distraction at work. And next week, we hear about why rest is key to being super productive at work. And spoiler alert, it doesn't involve chips, chocolate and a TV remote. Sorry to disappoint. And if you feel like you're just keeping it together as we work through this pandemic, Please check out our recent episodes, including how to spot burnout and what to do next and things to feed your brain to optimise your mental performance. And if you enjoy our show, please share with a friend and leave us a review if you can. We're also spending more time on LinkedIn right now, so please look us up and follow us and leave a comment. We'd love to engage. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who's currently spending her rest time sewing fashionable face masks and homeschooling her children. I'm Lisa Leong. Until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.